Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents or other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the very common and challenging problem of self-neglect. I'm delighted to have as my guest, Dr. Anand Naik, a fellow geriatrician who has studied this issue and who recently authored the chapter, Evaluating Capacity for Safe and Independent Living Among Vulnerable Older Adults, which was published last year in the textbook, Ethical Considerations and Challenges in Geriatrics. He is based at the Michael DeBakey VA Center in Houston, where he is the director of the VA Quality Scholars Program, and he's also an associate professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. As you know, it's fairly common for families or others to become concerned that an older person may not be taking adequate care of his or her health, his or her home, or some other aspect of life. And although this is such a common problem, most people, including many doctors, I might add, are often somewhat stumped as to what to do or how to proceed when they encounter this type of situation. So I'm delighted to have Dr. Naik join us today to talk about his work on addressing this issue so that we can better understand it and the options for getting help if you've been worried about an older person's ability to care for himself or herself. Anand, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So maybe we can start with that term that I mentioned, self-neglect. It was actually written about in the New York Times earlier this year, but I think not everyone is familiar with it in the public. So how do you explain what is self-neglect and how did you become interested in this issue? Sure. So I think self-neglect is more of a kind of a, a catch-all term, and it applies to situation where often older adults, but it could really be um, any adult, uh, has is having difficulty managing their uh, activities of daily living. So you know, being able to take care of themselves, um, and they also find themselves, you know, getting getting uh, sick more often, or or getting admitted to the hospital more often than would be expected given the, given their medical condition. So they often have treatable conditions. Um, so it's not like they were just diagnosed with a really difficult to treat cancer, but they have a common condition that, and they're given, they're prescribed the right medications or they're given the right services to manage that condition, but yet they're still having trouble with it. And they keep getting readmitted to the hospital or they're coming to the emergency room or they're having trouble taking care of their medications they're running into accidents. Those, those are often evidence of self-neglecting behaviors in mm -hmm. that sense. Yeah. And those are certainly the ones we might notice as, uh, as clinicians when a person is, uh, is not taking, not following through on what we were expecting them to do for their health or when the family alerts us to that. So yeah, so how did you become particularly interested in self-neglect and in studying this? So I think it's really just experiences that I had to, you know, in, in geriatrics training, you know, part of the training in a lot of good programs is to go on, on house calls, right? Um, yeah. And, and uh, one of the house calls programs is really with, with uh, our county uh, health system. So it was much more vulnerable populations, both financially as well as medically. Um, and you would just go to people's homes and you'd see the really bad consequences of self-neglect. On a, on a like a visceral gut level, right? So it just kind of sticks with you um, and you really have a lot of compassion for, for these old, uh, vulnerable older adults. So it, I think that's sort of what got me attracted and that there wasn't, people didn't sort of understand how to conceptualize this problem very well. I could, well when I went to read about it, there wasn't a lot at the time. And I think, um, you know, as my career has progressed, I've had a number of interests um, that aren't always just about vulnerable older adults, but I think this has been an ongoing, I would say, passion for me, a passion project, and I've sort of stayed with it the whole time just because, you know, those those sort of gut um, 
feelings about it and wanting to help vulnerable adults. You see it so vividly. It's, it's in four dimensions, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so I think that that sort of um, got me interested and kept me interested. And uh, it also seems to me that self-neglect is a little bit tied into this idea of, you know, neglect of an older person, right? And to the, uh, the concept of um, it's sometimes tied in with forms of elder abuse. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the term that I like to use even better than even more than self-neglect is actually vulnerability. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a lot of vulnerable adults uh, and they're vulnerable because they're having trouble with what, what I what I describe as the capacity to make and execute decisions for their own safe and independent living. And so when you're when you have that vulnerability, it really exposes you to a set of harms and so some of the harms are the ones we just talked about that are a little more medicalized or in the medical arena, but certainly uh, forms of elder abuse, neglect, self-neglect, uh, financial exploitation, um, you know, all of these sorts of potential harms that can happen to someone who's vulnerable are, occur at a much higher rate um, uh, among those that we describe as self-neglecting. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and actually, as I was sort of reading up a little bit on the topic in preparation for our conversation, I had not been aware of this, but I guess when they uh, passed the Affordable Care Act in 2010, that included an Elder Justice Act, and that was the first federal definition of self-neglect. I hadn't realized there was a federal definition, but I thought I might share it. It's very similar to what you've been saying. An adult's inability due to physical or mental impairment or diminished capacity to perform essential self-care tasks. And they go on to list some of those. So what are some common signs or symptoms that might uh, suggest self-neglect? So I think it's the sorts of sort of things that we were describing as vulnerability to some harms. So these are, uh, you know, evidence of physical abuse, uh, certainly. So if, if you're uh, signs of bruising or, or, or injury or harm to an older adult, uh, neglect, uh, evidence of neglect. So if there's a par- paid caregiver or a family member who's supposed to be taking care of this vulnerable older adult, and you notice that they're, they're clothes aren't being taken care of, or they physically don't look like they're being taken care of, or, or meals aren't being prepared. Um, those, those are certainly evidence of it. And then often it presents itself through financial exploitation where, you know, they lose large amounts of money through, um, you know, telephone scams or bank fraud or, or other sorts of uh, scams and frauds. And, and so they just, they present because they've just really lost a lot of money. Um, and that just becomes apparent because they're not able to pay the bills or they're not able to do the things they were doing financially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if, if we see that in someone, I, I guess initially we have to sort out whether that's something that they might be, you know, in a way, quote unquote, doing to themselves versus being neglected by another person, right? Sure. And, and the two go hand in hand. So mm. uh, often someone who's having self-neglecting behaviors is not actually, they're vulnerable and they're not, not actually able to not only stop those harms, but sometimes they're not even able to recognize, either recognize the risk factor that produced the harm or even just that the harm happened to them. That even happens sometimes. They don't even acknowledge, not because they're in denial, but they really don't even realize that they've had this harm uh, occur to them. And that's actually a manifestation of self-neglect as well. Mm-hmm. Right. So in an, um, in an article that you published on this topic uh, a few years ago, you explain that that people need to be able to address their sort of self-care and self-protection. So what does it look like when someone is is able to do this? What what do those terms mean to sort of be able to manage your own self-care and self-protection? And let's assume for now that there's not someone else involved who is exploiting or abusing the older person. Sure. And this is sort of what I explained to some people that to me, geriatrics isn't just about like an age, you know, you cross a certain age, whether it's 65 or 75 or 80. It's not really about age. It's actually about your your ability to kind of manage your day to day, what we call activities of daily living. So just basic hygiene, personal needs and hygiene sorts of things. So bathing, dressing, um, uh, cleaning yourself, that sort of thing. And then there's kind of the physical environment you're, you're living in this, you know, your, this, the condition of your home or your apartment, you know, is there just kind of garbage or filth around, or there's, you know, hoarding is sometimes in this sort of same family of conditions. Um, you know, there's lots of, uh, you know, magazine subscriptions from 10 years ago, just sort of packed, sort of stacked up in the side of the room. You know, 
those are sort of similar kinds of, um, uh, you know, evidence of someone who's not able to manage uh, their, their self-care activities. And then things like cooking and cleaning um, uh, and just managing your own sort of daily life. I think that's what we describe that as well. And then I think a few things that we've really drawn out in particular is kind of being able to manage your own healthcare uh, self-management. So managing your medications, um, if you've had a, a wound, you know, being able to participate in your wound care. Um, if you're someone, let's say, who has high blood pressure or diabetes, you know, being able to check your blood pressure or participate if someone else is doing it for you, participate in that activity. Um, those are sort of the, the healthcare self-management things. And then some aspect of financial management. So I don't mean taking care of your, you know, your stock portfolio. I really mean like just basic pocketbook issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, being able to manage your your daily, you know, can I make sure I have enough money to go to the store to buy, um, you know, bread and milk with with some money that's in my wallet and being able to understand um, how much money is being exchanged and, and those sorts of things. So these are all the kinds of activities that we, you know, for most of our lives are able to manage without even thinking about. But as you as an older adult becomes more and more vulnerable, they start to lose the ability to to actually not just physically perform them, but even just do the cognitive tasks or ensure that someone else is doing the tasks for them are doing those tasks appropriately. Right. Yeah. That was uh, something that I thought was very interesting in your article was was sort of specifying that it's not just can this person do these tasks, but if they're having difficulty, are they able to appropriately delegate and ask someone else to do it or recruit the help. And that that's part of what uh, distinguishes this from somebody who might have some impairments or disabilities. But then, you know, if they can't walk to the store, gets someone to take them or someone to bring the groceries or or otherwise arranges to compensate for the difficulty that they're having. Yeah, I, I often give the example of, uh, you know, I, I can get I can think of several 80 year old sort of grandmothers who have maybe lost some of their mobility or lost some of their um, physical uh, capacity, physical ability to do some tasks. But, you know, they're really quick to pick up their cell phone and call the home health agency if the home health uh, worker doesn't show up that morning. So they even though they have some physical disabilities, they have they fully have their capacity uh, to make and execute decisions for self-care because they're able to ensure that someone else is taking care of those tasks for them. Right. Right. So I think we've we've all come. Well, certainly you and I in our in our work have come across older adults who seem to be struggling to manage some aspect of that that self-care, arranging for their basic needs to be met, following through on their medical care or or getting help. And then also that self-protection, you know, of protecting themselves from others who might be trying to take advantage of them or knowing how to get help when they need it. And, um, and it's a huge source of concern among general people. People often worry about an older parent or an older relative because, uh, as you commented, they go um, to the person's house and the house seems to be more and more of a mess or the person looks kind of disheveled or maybe there's not a lot of food in, in the refrigerator and, and people get concerned. And often the, the person then uh, says everything's fine or seems oblivious to it. So how common is it? for older adults to develop these difficulties addressing self-care and self-protection? So, you know, I think some of the official numbers that are out there really relate to when this presents in harms. So there's, I think some of the more recent numbers are about 5 million Americans are affected by, you know, self-neglect, abuse, exploitation, financial exploitation, et cetera. But I think on a subtle level, we probably see this, um, We, you know, that's, I think that, that 5 million is just the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. and that sort of beneath that is a whole host of folks who aren't necessarily being so exploited, but they're just having increasing difficulty with their self-care and their self-protection. And, you know, I think that number could almost be as high as 20, 30% of the older, older adult population. And I think that coincides with the uh, with the prevalence of, of mild cognitive impairment, you know, that's certainly a, a big factor in this. Right, right. That people, because uh, we have more and more people who are just living uh, longer, and that's a huge risk factor for starting to develop some changes in one's memory and thinking that could affect the ability to take care of oneself. So in, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to talk more about what, what our role is, you know, as doctors and healthcare providers. But, you know, in general, if somebody 
gets concerned about a relative or neighbor, what can they do? Especially since often that relative or neighbor will say, no, I'm fine. Yeah. So I, I, I certainly think it is worth, you know, just asking this, this, the question, as you said, and there will be some cases where they will admit that, yes, especially if there's been some abuse or exploitation occurring, they might be more willing to, to vocalize that. But you're right. A lot of um, older adults don't want to uh, express the vulnerability that's going on and they will outright um, deny it. And it's, again, it's not even a, a denial of like, I know this is happening, but I'm trying to hide it. It's that they really have lost what it's one of the one of the domains of, of understanding the capacities of lost appreciation that the, so they can kind of understand facts generally, but they don't they can't appreciate how they relate to their own individual life. Yeah, there's a loss of insight, sort of a loss of insight. That's right. Um, and so I think, you know, what one thing that we and we do this in the clinical interviews for this is we keep asking questions and we ask questions until the person either can't answer or doesn't want to answer. And, you know, I think for astute family member, you know, at some point you have to say, hey, it's like, how normal is it to be, you know, really living where there's cat urine all over the carpet? Like, wouldn't, like, if you were 20 or 30 years younger, wouldn't this person think that that was disgusting? Um, so, you know, you have to sort of think through and ask critical questions um, and and get an understanding of, you know, what's going on in the thought process of that older adult and and if they're not really able to provide more in-depth reasons for why something is occurring or why they're not able to manage something that they've been able to manage for many years and many decades in the past and they can't give you a good explanation then that's uh, i think a, a red flag something indicative of something maybe going on and their ability to protect themselves and, and it's an evidence to vulnerability yeah yeah i think you've brought up some really good points there you know one is that often the the person just may not see it, right? Because I think sometimes people talk about a relative or neighbor and they say he's, he's being so stubborn. And I think sometimes they um, people may not realize that the, that person may just really not be able to see <laughs> this problem the way they might have 20 years before or the way it looks to you. Um, and then I also just love how how you reminded us that it's important to start off by trying to better understand how they see the situation because often we jump in with you should do this or why aren't you doing that? And that when we step back and just sort of ask some some questions to better understand how they see it, we just get a lot more insight into where they're at. And that gives us better options for for understanding them and thinking about how we might help them. Yeah, and a lot of vulnerable older adults, and I think they have some awareness of, that, of their vulnerability, even if they don't have an awareness of the actual harms that are occurring. So they will sometimes get defensive or 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 fight back a little bit, but often the, that's not the case. I think they're actually quite skilled and gifted at hiding um, many harms. In fact, you know what I tell some of our trainees. You know they'll 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 see a patient in clinic and they'll come back and I'll say, well, tell me about Mr. Smith, and they're like, oh, he seems like really with it, and, and I sort of laugh and I said, you know, uh, I think maybe when I was your age, I knew what with it means, but I. I really don't know what that means anymore. Um, and part of it is because one thing I've come to appreciate is that you don't live to be 80 if you haven't had a certain degree of refined social graces. Mm. You know, you come and get dressed when you come to the doctor. You know, you're careful because you know you have a sense of some of your vulnerability. So you're careful what you say. And you're just really good at engaging socially because that's how you made it in the world for 80 years. Um, so you've got to get past the kind of initial veneer of, yeah, you know, everything's fine. You know, yeah, I'm able to manage everything. I don't have any problems or you recognize a problem and say, yeah, I'll take care of that when I go home. You know, that's a typical response, but you have to ask them. So, so tell me how you'll take care of them. What are the specific steps you'll take? Um, and what would happen if, if you tried to do that and it didn't work? You know, um, you said you're going to do a better job of managing your medications and you're going to put it in a pill tray. But what if you forget to do the pill tray, what would happen then? What would you do in that case? Mm -hmm. And you sort of just keep asking more and more questions until you see what, what is their level of insight and, and depth. And you have to get past um, what are the social graces that they've refined over 80 years. Yeah, you're kind of probing their ability to solve regular life problems um, yes. in a way. So so if a, if a person kind of concerned about their older parent or relative or neighbor you know, ask a few more questions and feels like there really are some red flags. 
what can they do next and how do they get help? So I think you can go to a healthcare provider, um, you know, a, a, a nurse, a practitioner, a doctor, or even some skilled social workers who, who work in this area. And they're able to do um, some basic, you know, through your basic medical assessment, which includes a history and a physical, they get an understanding of some underlying chronic medical conditions that could be contributing to it. Yeah, you know, if, if it's, let's say, a, a geriatrics clinic or something similar to that, neurology clinic or a family practice office that manages a lot of older adults, I'm going to imagine they're going to screen for um, things like cognitive impairment or depression. Um, they might screen for what is the adult's uh, um, activities of daily living. What are they able to do in terms of their routine day-to-day -day activities? And you get a sense of what are the full capabilities of this older adult from a physical perspective, from a functional perspective, from a cognitive or, or um, again, mood uh, a lot of depression will present itself as self-neglect as well. Right, right. But certainly cognitive impairment is a, a, a big component of this. Um, and so you want, you want to get a sense of what are the treatable um, medical conditions that you could potentially, if not reverse, at least lessen um, the severity of um, and help support. Um, you know, a couple, of, a couple of health professionals that I think are underutilized um, but are very helpful for self-neglect are physical therapists and occupational therapists. And the occupational therapists in particular have a couple of what I call the occupational therapist stethoscope. They have a couple of tests that they use. Um, one example is the Coleman evaluation of living skills oh, or yeah. the Kelts. Mm -hmm. And these are really good tests of, of, of pulling out these vulnerabilities. Right, right. Uh, they're, they're better than a lot of the things that we do as, as physicians in clinic. Um, and they really make it obvious kind of what is the vulnerabilities for safe and independent living. And so sometimes the occupational therapist could go to the older adult's home and do a home kitchen evaluation, homes, sorry, sorry, home safety evaluation or a kitchen safety evaluation and a couple of different things like that. Yeah, which can kind of help provide some some insight. So it does sound like, you know, really what needs to happen if you're worried about somebody is you do need to get some some help having them further um, evaluated. And uh, I often tell people that, you know, you can start off by just notifying the person's regular doctor, if you know who that is, of what you've observed, because as you were saying, for us in clinic, it may not be obvious, right? Because sometimes it's quite busy. And, you know, unless we're in a position to go to the person's home regularly, there may be changes going on that we're unaware of. And I've sometimes found it very helpful for a concerned family member or neighbor to um, uh, notify us with their their concerns. But somehow this person does need to get more evaluation is what it sounds like. That's right. And I have to agree with, with what you just said. It, I think it, just the, the medical assessment in the clinic, sometimes you'll, you'll miss things. And it's really important to get... Uh, proxy reports, what we call, you know, family members or friends or, or neighbors, informants, yes, who, who let you know about um, what the home looks like, what's happening at home, and what they've observed. I think that that's key. You're right. Yeah, it's, uh, it's huge. And, uh, and we also often have to remind people that, you know, the HIPAA privacy rule doesn't apply to them, people who are family and neighbors, and that um, they are allowed to, uh, to tell us things. We, we can't necessarily, in most cases, we're not able to tell them the things that we know about the older person's health, but we can certainly um, receive the, the information. Now, what do you tell people to do if, if their older relative says, no, don't tell my doctor? Because that does come up. Yeah, so I think this is a situation where if there's evidence of an actual harm, then uh, it, it's in that case, most states actually make that as mandatory reporting. So, you know, you really are um, allowed to um, express that because you as a, as a healthcare provider are supposed to report it to adult protective services in most states in the United States. If you if you see clear evidence of a of one of these harms, abuse, exploitation, financial exploitation, neglect. Um, I think you have to be careful a little bit about the HIPAA laws, as you said, um, but, you know, I think if a family member really feels like there is a question of capacity, you know, the older adult is very vulnerable and seems to maybe be lacking in the capacity to make decisions or execute decisions, 
then I think that that's a situation where you're, you're going to need um, a more thorough evaluation of those things. And I think that's where the, the family member's wishes can be kind of overruled. Right. I think in, uh, for the most part, it's not for family members, it's not illegal for them to tell somebody's doctor something against their wishes, but certainly a, a strain on the relationship and has to be carefully, carefully considered. Now, you mentioned adult protective services. Can you tell us a little bit um, more about that? Because that's, uh, it's true that that's an important resource that sometimes people have to turn to and that providers such as ourselves are sometimes, depending on the state, required to report to. So tell us a little bit about adult protective services. Yeah, so this is a state or even local level um social service organization or, or even a governmental entity. Um, and it really very much varies by state, by locality. Usually in bigger cities, there's more established um, adult protective service agencies um, than there are in, in more rural areas. But, um, you know, regardless of all that, I think their role is usually to try to recognize and prevent um, uh, elder abuse, exploitation, neglect, um, and self-neglect. And, um, you know, often there's um, relationships with healthcare providers and, and with, with courts, probate courts in particular. Um, and these are the courts that, uh, uh, make formal legal decisions about capacity and about, uh, guardianship and competency. And so adult protective services is sometimes a social services, uh, arm or agency of those courts. Um, that are charged to go to an older adult's um, home, a, a vulnerable older adult's home, to do an evaluation or an investigation of one of these harms and try to intercede as much as they can. Um, you know, in many cases, they take very much a, a public health or, the, or the, even the government's perspective. So they really want to protect autonomy first and foremost. And I find that they often don't intercede unless there's more serious uh, or more substantial evidence or more serious harms that have occurred because of their sort of preference for for, for um, autonomy. Um, and in that sense, I, I think the healthcare environment's a little bit different. And our, you know, our first instinct is to protect first. Um, but we but we don't we're not legal um, organizations, so we we can't sort of do things against people's wishes, but we're able to kind of put some protections in place earlier on. So I think that's that's sort of where our role is distinct from adult protective services or the courts. Right. Yeah, it is. Uh, I agree. I think it's quite variable because they're each state kind of regulates its adult protective services agencies differently. And then they're also very often, you know, locally funded and, and run. So it can be very different from, from place to place. And I think in most places they, they will go and they are used to older adults who are reluctant <laughs> to have somebody coming in, but I, I think they're often able to be persuasive, but at the same time, if the older person completely refuses, they can't, uh, they can't really force it unless they have a, a court order. And, and then, you know, there's kind of that stuck question of how do you get the courts involved, which sometimes only happens after people have been um, hospitalized, really. Yeah, so, the, so there usually has to be some evidence of actual harm having occurred, abuse, exploitation, neglect, financial exploitation. Um, or there's um, often a, someone has filed an adult protective services claim. So that's often a healthcare provider um, or, or another service organization that's noted um, some potential, either, either again, they've noted the harm has occurred or they're noting a lot of um, risk factors, significant risk factors that, that are related to self-neglect and, and harms. Um, and so in those cases, sometimes, again, it depends on the jurisdiction, but in those cases, sometimes adult protective services, adult protective services can um, intercede more uh, directly. Right. So so as you said, uh, you know, if someone seems to be neglecting their self-care or self-protection, they really need a, an evaluation and uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy can help. But then we also get involved as primary care providers or, or as geriatric consultants the clinicians do. And so what is the role of the, the primary care provider or some other kind of healthcare provider in assessing this capacity, in addressing this question of, you know, so can this person continue to, to live alone? And are they, you know, do they have the, uh, the capacity to make these decisions that they're making regarding their, their health and well-being and lifestyle? Sure. So again, this is an area where there is differences by state. 
there's differences by state in terms of who can do these sorts of assessments. Um, and in many states, it's only physicians, which, you know, you, you might argue if you have a, a geriatric nurse practitioner, um, he or she might be more skilled at doing it than an ophthalmologist would. Right. Um, but it just really depends on the state in terms of who can legally do these sorts of assessments. And and then there's usually a formal process and, and healthcare providers vary in their ability, their own ability to do these sorts of assessments. And so um, I think sometimes primary care providers, especially those who take care of a lot of older adults, have some ability or experience to do these assessments. Other times they'll refer them to some of the specialties that are more uh, adept or trained to do them. So specialties like neurology or psychiatry um, uh, or psychologists. Um, and then sometimes even social workers, if the state allows that. Um, and, you know, I think we've sort of developed our own process and tried to, to teach and, and disseminate this process. Yeah, what, um, is, a, what is your process like? Tell us about that. Sure. So it's really thinking about capacity in two different in two different big buckets. The first one is decision-making capacity, and that's the kind of capacity that everyone's more familiar with. That's the capacity to consent to medical treatment or to consent to surgery. And that really involves a, a set of four standards or criteria that have been established in the law for a long time. Um, those are understanding, appreciation, uh, comparative and consequential reasoning, and then and then uh, making a decision. So understanding is just being able to relate back basic facts. Um, it's a little bit memory dependent, but it's not really asking. It's not an intelligence test. It's just you know, Mr. Smith, uh, you know, we've just diagnosed you with congestive heart failure. That means your heart is not able to pump your blood the blood forward as much as like it normally does. Can you repeat back what I said in your own words? You know. So, you know, avoiding technical terms and lay, you know, just trying to say things is so people understand them. That's understanding. Appreciation is sometimes people have an abstract understanding. Um, so, yeah, I understand that sometimes people um, can have some trouble with their heart. And so then they have to take some medications to help them. Um, I can understand that. And sometimes I take medications. But, you know, that would never happen to me. And I, I wouldn't have to take any medications because I'll, I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. So that's someone who lacks appreciation, which is insight is what we talked about before. Right. Um, and then uh, and then there's comparative and consequential reasoning. So comparative reasoning is just comparing two different options and saying the pros and cons of those two, two different options. And consequential reasoning is, you know, if I do option A, what could be a potential good or bad thing that could happen? Or if I did option B, what is a potential good or bad thing that could happen? And to be able to say that back. And then the last one is just making a decision. So some people can sort of reason through this whole process, but they just cannot make a decision for whatever reason. Or they keep changing um, what they decide every time. Or they you keep ask changing. Them. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so those are the classic decision-making domains. And then what we found in this population is that sometimes people have intact um, decision-making capacity. The one thing that they might have, they, you might have noted that it's generally intact, but they had a little bit of trouble with appreciation and a little bit of trouble with consequential reasoning. Um, but in general, I think I would have to sort of say they're intact. Right. Those people might have trouble in the second bucket, which we call um, uh, executive decision-making. So this is the ability to execute the decisions that have been made. So this is being able to arrive at a plan, sort of um, problem solve or reason through. This is an example of, of the 80-year-old grandmother that I was talking about. You know, she might not be actually able to do some of the self-care tasks, but she can definitely make a plan of how, how it will get done. And when that plan isn't executed by someone else, she can get on her phone and, and call the appropriate agency and make sure that it gets done. Right. So, so you're able to sort of have a plan, follow through with it. And, and problem solve when there when a challenge arises. So that's executive uh, decision making, and we find that that's often the thing that's lacking in self neglect. And so, how do you determine whether somebody has it, other than seeing if they follow through with, you know, I mean, let's say the decision we're asking them to make is whether to continue to live at home and not move in with their, their child or let somebody move in. And, and they can kind of talk through the, the consequences and, and agree that they'll have to get some help. Do you, just, do you just then see whether they actually were able to do it? Or how does one assess that executive capacity? 
Yeah, so I think fully you have to see if, if they can do it. That's right. often the ultimate test. Okay. Um, we, we have developed, um, so we even have an instrument which we call the MedSail. It's, it's really more of an interview um, process. And what's different about, I think I've talked about the, a lot of the principles of it already. Mm-hmm. What's different about the MedSail versus something like, let's say, the mini mental state exam. When you do, when you do a test like the mini mental state exam, you just read the instructions as they're read. And if someone doesn't understand the instructions, you, you can't clarify them. You just read the instructions as they're written. Again, you repeat it. That's the standard sort of cognitive testing. What, what this sort of capacity tools do is you do ask the questions in different ways. You keep probing until you get to what is the gap. And what we've done is we've, we've created common scenarios for self-care. So you know, you've come to your front door and you notice that the door is locked and you don't have your keys with you, you know, te- you know, tell us what in your own words, what, what's happened, you know, has a situation like this ever happened to you before? Or could you imagine a situation like this happening to you? If this did happen to you, what would be some options that you'd have to try to, to solve it? And they might struggle with that and say, well, well, you know, some people say that, that they might um, leave a key with a neighbor, you know, is that something you might try to do? Um, and then in the consequential reasoning, what, what would, you know, how would, if that is a plan, how would you actually do execute that? How would you actually do that plan? And so it's, again, it's an interview that tries to get at both decision-making and executive capacity, but again, it's not the actual activity. So it's, it's our best guess. And we, and I think it's somewhat effective, especially if you also are doing the full other stuff of a capacity, sorry, a cognitive test, a depression test, a physical, uh, 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 physical exam, and then. Um, you know, ADLs, IADLs, functional tests, you know, you do this full battery of assessments um, and then you do this interview. We find that we're, we're usually pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. So let's say you assess somebody and uh, you know, they just don't do that well in explaining how they'd execute decisions or you give them a chance to do it and they're still, they're still floundering. What happens then? Yeah, that's a perfect question. So one thing I, I tell to the trainees again is that, you know, it's not like as soon as you don't pass, you know, then we have to go do try to go, go and get guardianship to protect you. That's kind of a legal protection. Guardianship is almost in almost every jurisdiction, a last case uh, option. You know, after, you, you only try that after several things have failed because just the courts aren't going to authorize guardianship unless some major harm has occurred in many cases. So the legal route is not actually the first, second or third option usually. So what we try to do is, is put in as many, um, they're not always so medical. They're often more psychosocial or even social service interventions as possible. So this is where things like, um, you know, homemaker, home health agency, meals um, on wheels, home-based primary care, meals on wheels. Uh, sometimes you can get like, we're not going to do a full guardianship, but we might get a payee, someone who's, who had, who've given some financial authority to, to help manage some of your more complicated bills and, and finances, a medical power of attorney to help you with decisions when, when you're not able to make them. Um, so you start to put some of these, um, less onerous and restrictive protections in place. And then you start to do all the social service interventions and health care interventions that you can to try to just shore up all the vulnerabilities that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. To try to kind of still find a way to address the the need for care and protection that the person has. Now, what about when families have um, a general durable power of attorney that is either effective immediately or when the person, you know, shows sign of incapacity? If that person is refusing help, can families still make use of that power of attorney to intervene? I have to say, I see them doing it. It's never clear to me exactly where that fits in with the law. And I'm sure it, again, varies based on your jurisdiction. So, you know, again, this might be, let's take a worst case scenario. This is a, an issue of exploitation, right? And the, and, the, and the older adult isn't so vulnerable and is actually capable and could make their own decisions. Well, they could probably try to pursue that or fight that legally and, and they might win. I mean, that's a probably a difficult route to go down. But, but they would, as you said, we, people sort of do this and, and we, we're not really sure if they, if they have all the legal ability to do well, it. Well, I mean more, you know, oh. sometimes people see their older relative maybe spending money in a way that is is worrisome and they have a power of attorney, but you know, they're a little afraid to intervene because they're 
their parent is saying, you know, no, I want to keep the the checkbook, right? So I think this is where the medical, the full sort of, I don't even want to just call it physician, but the full kind of healthcare providers who kind of do a, 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 a good assessment of their function, their cognitive ability, any depression. And then, and especially if someone is able to do a little bit of an interview, like we described, or having an OT do a a common a kells a common evaluation of living skills and you and if you see these gaps then i then i then i as a physician would feel more comfortable if a durable power of attorney was in place to mm-hmm. say hey i'm i'm seeing clearly documented uh, decision making or executive uh, incapacities and i've even seen some harms and maybe it's even harms just multiple hospital readmissions you know for things that should be treatable um, you know, I'm seeing some evidence of this. I'm seeing some incapacities and we have a durable medical power of attorney in place. You know, I would feel comfortable sort of executing that with the family member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sort of saying now you might have to intervene a bit because, uh, you know, in the way the benefits of doing so outweigh the, the harm to the person's, uh, autonomy. That's right. Because, you know, we're usually still trying to support them in living where they are and, and meeting some, you know, broader goals that are important to them. So, yeah, well, certainly a sticky situation, but it's sometimes been said that we're not a very age-friendly society, but of course we have, you know, a growing older population and would self-neglect be less of a problem if we sort of made some social changes in a way to be more supportive of, of older people? Yeah, that's a good question. So do I think the like the prevalence or the, the number of people who have self-neglect would change? No. I think the fact that we're just living longer and and part of living longer is just acquiring all the things that make us vulnerable, you know. Um, so I think the number of self-neglect, the people, the number of people who have self-neglecting behaviors or have vulnerability that's related to self-neglect, that I don't think would change. Now, how we respond to it, how we actually have protections, both in our homes, in our neighborhoods, or directly, um, you know, psychosocial or medical interventions. I think that those things, we'd have more of those available. We'd have, it, it would be easier to have them in place. It wouldn't be so, so hard. You know, sometimes our neighborhoods are, are a barrier. They themselves uh, are producing some of the vulnerabilities that we're seeing. Right. So I think if we had a more age-friendly environment, you could change the actual, what we call the built environment or the social environment that people live in. Mm-hmm. Um, some of this is happening with technology. Um, we're seeing, you know, the connected home, um, right. the Internet of Things. I think these things are coming around and, and they will help to aid some of our uh, vulnerable older adults. There's a bit of a tension on privacy issues now and the balance between privacy. But we find that actually a lot of vulnerable adults are willing to give up some of their privacy if in exchange they're getting a lot more um, autonomy Right. Um, because of this technology. Yeah. Yeah. And you were also saying how, you know, to sort of evaluate and assist older adults who might be neglecting themselves or otherwise see, seem vulnerable that that, you know, we need to have people who can perhaps visit them in in the home and help do that assessment, whether that's adult protective services or other kinds of, you know, aspects of our, our health and welfare system. So, you know, those organizations need to, to exist and be adequately funded and, and trained. And I also think about the, the sort of current project to, in some places, you know, train older adults as community health workers. There's something called AgeWell Global, where they have, they take older adults and kind of train them to visit other more vulnerable older adults, yes. partly as a social visit, but also to check on, on their health. And it just occurs to me that that might be another way to sort of, you know, shore up the social fabric so that we spot people sooner who need help and have more options for getting them some evaluation and and assistance. Because right now it's often quite hard to find someone who can go out to an older person's home. Yeah, and certainly without means, you know, it, um, you know people who have a lot of money or means can maybe pay for that. But, right. um, but I think for the average person that's not as uh, available or accessible. Yeah, because I think if you ask the average primary care doctor, my parents refusing to to come in and I'm concerned, can you can you send somewhere to get them in? The average primary care doctor actually doesn't have a ton of resources available. That's right. Which is a, which is a huge problem, actually. And I see that families often get a bit stuck there because uh, their parent is refusing to go in and the clinician is a little bit in the situation of, well, if if you bring them in, I'll evaluate them. But other than that, there's almost not much to do other than, 
if you think it's bad enough, call Adult Protective Services. You know, That's right. and hopefully they'll be able to send somebody out and maybe convince the the person to come in. So I did see that in the the Chicago Health and Aging Project, they followed a large community of older people and found that there was I think one in nine who was showing some signs of of self neglect, similar to what you were saying before that fairly common, just a question, you know, especially if people get old enough, becomes more common. So for those who are trying to plan ahead for their own aging, you know, and avoiding common age-related pitfalls or problems, is there something that one can do to, to plan to not fall into this these types of problems that sometimes come up? Any thoughts on that? Or, or at least to avoid the more distressing consequences, like having to, you know, move against your will or, or some of the dramatic things that sometimes happen? Yeah. So I think, sort of a few big picture categories. So one is, you know, just advocating advanced care planning. So letting your family members know your wishes as it relates to your medical care, as it relates to even maybe some of these social uh, situations. And, you know, would you be willing to to be part of an adult daycare, adult day program, you know, as you got more vulnerable and maybe not able to take care of yourself as well? And just to have some conversations about these. I know these are difficult conversations sometimes, like like a lot of advanced care planning conversations. But I think that's important. It, it not only protects you, but also you as a, an older adult, but also helps protect your family or gives your family some peace of mind about how to proceed. And then I think the other big bucket is kind of the things that the primary care provider or what your grandmother tells you. You know, uh, you know, eat right, exercise. Um, uh, you know, don't smoke, <laughs> you know, the, these are all the, all these things are the kinds of chronic conditions. So diabetes, hypertension, heart disease that end up, uh, contributing to the conditions that, that cause self-neglect or contribute or, or worse than self-neglect, let's say. And, uh, also living, I guess, somewhere where you're socially, you know, more connected if possible. Right. Yes. Yes. And, and, and sort of being aware of as, as your physical ability, maybe maybe cognitively you feel fully intact and you are, but physically you're you're becoming more and more vulnerable. Then just being starting to be open to kind of moving, you know, move to a more age friendly environment, even if it's independent living neighborhood. It's a, a neighborhood that's more conducive to older adults or or being paired or willing to live to in to, in a community that lets you age in place um, as things mm-hmm. as things might progress in your own health. Yeah, because those communities often offer, you know, more more supports and there are more people around, which I think can forestall some of the the problems, um, both because you've got more of a, yeah. And also it means there are more people kind of around who might observe if if uh, someone could be taking advantage of you, because uh, it seems that it's often older people who are quite isolated, who sometimes are at higher risk of of um, being taken advantage of or abused by others. That's right. Well, this is this has been great. So I guess just to, to as we wind down, just to recap. So again, if somebody comes worried about an older parent or relative or acquaintance who seems to be struggling to, to take care of of themselves and and their health, the things to do again are. So if someone's worried about their older relative or adult. So I think, again, the first thing to do is, is, is just ask some questions, you know, and it doesn't need to be so confrontational, but just kind of casually ask some questions about how they're doing and, and how they're managing, you know, some of their things. And if, especially if you, especially if you know, or note that, Hey, some issues happened, you know, you can point to that issue. Um, and then I, I think if you, if, if your alarm bells have gone off at that point, it's really, worth having um, your family member, relative or neighbor sort of seek uh, care through a healthcare professional who can do a, a proper assessment of, of their functioning, of their health, uh, and of their sort of capacity to live safely and independently. Um, and if you note, if you have clear evidence of a harm has occurred, then I think it's even more reason to contact their healthcare professional. Um, or even adult protective services, um, if you think the the harm is ongoing or 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 uh, or something that needs to come to the attention of of social services. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're worried, find out more, ask questions, take some notes on what you observe, and then uh, find a way to get the person more evaluation. And if all else fails, consider adult protective services. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Okay. Agree. 
Great. Well, in closing, do you have any favorite online resources or, or books or other websites to recommend to the audience? So, you know, I think that there's now, even I used to sort of just recommend care.com, but I think there's an array of kind of uh, organizations or companies out there that can provide some, um, you know, informal or even formal professional services uh, for vulnerable older adults, and they're often a good source. The other thing in every community, there's there's increasingly a, a class of, they're, they're often social workers or nurses who are kind of adult managers, adult older adult care managers that kind of, they know the lay of the land in terms of social services and healthcare professionals and, um, and, you know, options for, you know, they're the ones who know where the, where the five really good occupational therapists are mm, yeah. to find. Um, and it's really worth connecting with them um, because they're sort of the, the network um, who can kind of get you connected to these kinds of services that we've described. Right. Great. Well, those are those are great thoughts. So I'll uh, I'll look for some of those too online. Put some some related links in the show notes for people. Uh, well, Anand, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with us about this uh, this important issue. I appreciate it. I appreciate your interest in the topic and uh, the opportunity to talk to your audience. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.